0: a routine where you're teaching them uh, a little game a little trick see how smart they are and it's kind of a great trick when you have your in-laws over because they think it's adorable and, and it's this uh, you have them raise up their hands and you say to them what yeah how big How big? Uh, our daughter was born Tammy uh, when she was a few months old how big is Tammy and she would raise her hands this, this is how big Tammy is and of course she wasn't very big but, but she thought she was pretty big so uh, this is the interactive part of the sermon. So um, how big is uh, Jesus to you? OK, yeah, great. Some of you are going, eh, eh, eh. how big is Jesus to you? He's this big. He's huge. He's big. And Steve Harvey's introduction really points to that. This video portrays the bigness, the vastness, the brilliance, the supremacy of Jesus. How big is his grace? How big is His love? How big is His mercy? How big is the love of Jesus Christ for you and for me? I want to contrast the bigness of Jesus' love with the bigness, the vastness, the enormity of my sin. Maybe you can relate to this. It's the third Tuesday in July of 1997. I'm the pastor of Roseville Covenant Church in Roseville, Minnesota. And that particular night, a special session of the board and the leaders was called. They were called to address a critical problem in our church. The only problem with that critical problem in our church is that the critical problem was me. We came to the church and there was this tremendous, enormous debate. Uh, Some would say on one side that our pastor was caught in lies. He was gone from the office for long periods of time, unavailable. And uh, also they had noticed, at least they felt they had, that there was this... Lack of passion in his preaching, and that, that his, his his passion for the ministry had flagged. On the other side, those of, that were closest to me, they say, "Yeah, but look at the past performance. And our church is still growing, and people are still coming to Christ. So, so let, let let's cut them some slack." Accusations were made, charges were thrown. It was volatile. It was violent dialogue, and and they were arguing about me. On my way home from that meeting, and I had told Sherry I didn't want her her to come to the meeting because I didn't want her to hear what was going to be said. On the way home, I thought to myself, and this wasn't a prayer because at that point in my life, I wasn't on speaking terms with God. At this particular time on my way home, I said to myself, "How, how, how did I get here? How on earth did I get here? I flashed back a little under three years to the first time a member of the church uh, took me to one of the many um, Minnesota casinos, Uh, and I was introduced to this uh, wonderful, beautiful place. Uh, Many of you know how wonderful it is, And, and I immediately got in touch with that part of me that was broken, that addictive part of me, and... Within a short period of time, I was hopelessly addicted to gambling. And then again, three years later, that was in the fall of 1994. Now in September of 1997, Larry Olson, who was a dear friend and the chairman of our church, said, I want you and Sherry to go to the Marble Retreat in Colorado. It was a retreat for pastors in crisis. And um, even though I told him I wasn't in crisis, uh, of course I was, and And this is what Larry said to me as we were getting ready to leave. He said, Dwayne, let's see if we can sort this thing out. Well, the hard part was that this thing was me. Let's see if we can sort this thing out. Well, so she already go to the marble retreat in in Colorado. And shortly after that, uh, I confessed to my wife and to my counselor, my great sin. And I met with the church when I came back and I offered my resignation and I offered my apology. And, and uh, I was under the care and discipline of the Evangelical Covenant Church for three years. And during that time, I was um, invited <laughs> most strenuously to be in a relationship with Jim Sundholm, who was a counselor and a kind of a no BS guy. And that's exactly what I needed. Here's what I discovered in my meetings with Jim. First thing was that I have an enormous, I have an enormous capacity to sin and deceive. And um, an enormous capacity to hide my addiction. Many of you here know exactly what I'm talking about. Second thing I discovered was my fierce need to control my circumstances and my surroundings and he helped me understand that I was getting back in touch with when our son Tyler was killed in 1989. And that kind of came out of that, this need to control. And, and I had this, this great need. And the third thing I discovered with Jim was my, my utter dependence on human approval and acceptance. Other churches that I had served had accepted me and loved me and affirmed me. Roseville accepted me and loved me and affirmed me for many years, but... Now I found I was in the very uncomfortable position of being deeply disliked and distrusted in this roiling controversy. As I was talking to Jim Sundholm about the bigness of my sin, the vastness of my deception, the wideness of my transgression, he, made me, he gave me the assignment of studying doing an exegesis on the book of Colossians. And this is what Jim said, because no matter how big your sin is, Christ is bigger. I had to rediscover the gospel. I had to rediscover the bigness of Jesus and His grace. I had to know that Jesus was bigger than my circumstances, that His arm was long enough to reach into the depths that I had fallen. And so this is what I discovered in that study. And I want to invite you to come with me on a journey. A journey to discover the vastness, the wideness, the extravagance of Jesus and his gospel. So here's some things that I discovered. Because Jesus was strong for me, I was free to be weak. Because Jesus won for me, I was free to lose, as much as I hate that. Because Jesus was someone, I was free to be no one. Because Jesus was extraordinary, I was free to be ordinary. And Because Jesus succeeded for me, I was free to fall. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to invite you on a journey to discover the gospel in a brand new way. And to discover the bigness, the wideness, the vastness of this one that we call Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I want to give a special uh, uh, credit to two sources that I used. One is the book that Pam Karlberg referred to me. It's a book entitled Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. And he's given us the permission to use his title in our series. By Tulian Chavijan. And the other book that I relied heavily on was uh, that classic by C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. So I want to give credit to those two sources as we begin this series. So I invite you to participate fully. And when I say fully, I would like you to read uh, the book of Colossians every week. It's only a few short chapters. I'd like you to be part of a grow group. If you're not part of one regularly, this is a great time for eight weeks to be part of one. We have them every night all over the valley, Uh, so you can check with Pastor Brandon afterwards. And I just want to invite you to take this journey seriously. If you do, if you do, you will discover the vastness of Jesus' love for you. So this morning, I just want to do an intro and an overview. And I'd like to do that by making four statements about the greatness of Jesus. And in the context of the four statements of the greatness of Jesus, recognize the futility of making Jesus small. Too many Christians in our world make Jesus small. They put him in a box. And they say, in here he is contained. In here I understand him. In here I have a set of rules that I can check off and I can be okay. We need to recognize that Jesus is not small. And so those four statements are as follows. I want everything. Number two, I have nothing. Number three, I want to earn it. And number four, Jesus is enough. Uh, Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, as we uh, begin this eight week journey, I'm I'm very excited about what you want to do in my life, what you've already been doing in my life, but what you want to do in the lives of of our people. Lord, this is amazing when we recognize that so many times we've lived our lives with Jesus being very small a small part of our life, a small impact on our life, a small influence on our life. And yet everything we read in the book of Colossians is about the bigness, the wideness, the vastness, the extravagance of your son. May we know that. May we live that. May we feel that deeply. So, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in Thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, I want to begin at the beginning. And so um, I'm going to be moving around the scriptures today. Uh, Most of the scriptures will be on the screen. Uh, But if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter two. And I want to read just a couple of verses there. This is just before the fall of man. God has created Adam and Eve and um, and then Adam and Eve were shown their new uh, home. And uh, this is amazing, startling. In fact, listen to what God showed them. The Lord God took the man, verse 15 of chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. These simple verses help us understand that God wanted everything for Adam and Eve. He wanted them to experience everything. In fact, he gave them this vast garden. If you know your geography, uh, we know that the uh, Garden of Eden was in that Crescent Valley Uh, called Mesopotamia years ago, that crescent valley between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. This is not just a biblical reality. Of course, we knew that, but geologists have showed us that as well. This is where man began. Of course, we knew that. And uh, because this is where man began, it was it was an incredibly fertile area between these two rivers that made kind of a a V and uh, and all the trees that God provided were laden with lush fruit. And it was just an amazing place and a beautiful place and just a spectacular place. Everything was perfect. But God said, there's that one tree. Just stay away from that tree. Everything else is yours. But Adam said, no, I want I want Everything. I want everything. Almost everything wasn't enough for him. I want everything. Wisdom came from Solomon in Ecclesiastes when he said these words, chapter 3, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. You hear that? God has set this everythingness in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. There's this lack, this longing, this wanting everything that we can't quite get a hold of. This, others have called it, St. Augustine called it a God-shaped vacuum that nothing else can fill. We know that there's something bigger, there's something more, there, there's something, desire that can fill that, but we just don't know what that soul desire is. Now, ultimately, we know, and God has told us in the book of Revelation, that this eternity that um, uh, Solomon talked about, that's been set in our heart, this this void that we want, ultimately will be satisfied. Uh, Revelation 21, 5 says, Behold, I'm making all things new. We know that at the consummation, that everything will be satisfied, everything. But in the meantime. There's this emptiness, this longing for everything and this recognition that we don't have everything and I want something more. C.S. Lewis said it this way. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Isn't that beautiful? And you were, you were created for that heaven and earth. That new thing that God will create someday. But in the meantime, we are on this earth with this longing that there's got to be something more. St. Augustine said it this way, You made for us, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. There is something that this world cannot provide. A longing, a satisfaction, a solution to our emptiness and restlessness. Restlessness. The restlessness of man says, I want more. I want something that I don't have. I, I want everything. And the cry of God in the testimony of this book in Colossians is that your heart longs for Jesus. That everythingness that you want is Jesus. Yesterday, um, I met with a, a young couple uh, for the first time. They want to get married and so we have a kind of a preview uh, introduction before we start counseling. And um, the young woman, and uh, I, I won't use her name simply because uh, I didn't ask her permission, but the young woman uh, has never been a church person. Her family never went to church. Um, she doesn't really know anything, but she's she said she's always had this kind of desire to go to church. She'd ask her mom and dad, can I go to church? Well, yeah, if you can find a ride. You know, in high school, if our, one of her friends said, you want to go to church, you go to church. But she, she said she's always had this kind of this desire in her. And, and when I, I talked to them about uh, the triangle of, uh, of marriage that I use with couples, you know, the, the triangle uh, that God is at the top and then commitment, uh, Christ commitment and communication are the three pillars. If you want a great marriage, you have to have all three, that kind of spiel. And she said, but, but I, I want that, she said. I said, you want a great marriage? No, she said, I want Christ. I, I don't have them. There's always been this emptiness inside of me, this, this longing, this, this, there's, there's got to be something more. And, and she said, I, I want that. And I thought, wow, this is easy. <laughs> this is awesome. Because God, of course, had done that work. And have you ever felt that way that there's got to be something more? I want everything. Something is missing. I want everything. Which leads us to the second statement that we find in Colossians, and it's this. I want everything, but I have nothing. Or, more correctly, the thing that I have come to believe, or I have known to be something that will satisfy that emptiness, I discover that it can't satisfy it at all. Now, I want to talk for just a moment to... People in our church who are addicted, and I know we have, I don't know, at least a hundred, maybe more. And, and it's this, and I want to tell you from a fellow addictive person uh, that I love you very much, and I love you because of your honesty. Um, you've discovered that there's something missing in your life, and you've tried to fill it with something alcohol, drugs, gambling, something. You've tried to fill it with something and and you've discovered further that that doesn't work and that that leads to nothingness and and therefore you're trying God and you're trying to let God fill that and and here you are. Now, in some ways, and please don't get offended at me, non-addictive people, in some ways, addictive people are more honest than you, the rest of you. Because they say, I can't do it. I can't do it. I've tried to fill that hole. It never works. It always ends in a crash. I can't do it. And you look up to God and you say, God, my only hope is you. Now, non-addictive people many times go through life being very addicted to something they have come to believe will satisfy them. And it never satisfies them, but they keep that their secret. When we get to the place of nothingness, of recognizing that anything we have propped up to believe will satisfy us, then and only then do we realize that Jesus is big enough to fill that hole. So we ask the question, what is missing? We already have Christ. Many of us, most of us in this church today, we already have Christ and we have all that he brings. So why are we still missing something? What else is there? Most of us don't want to replace Jesus. I've never wanted to replace Jesus in my life. But here's what I have done, and you have too. I don't replace Jesus. I just believe He's not enough. Jesus isn't enough. I've heard it all my life that He is, but He's just not enough. There's still sex or there's still drugs or there's still my job or there's still my relationship or there's still my profession or my position in life. There's still something I want Christ, but he's just not enough. C.S. Lewis in Screwtape Letters, (laughs) if you haven't read it, you got to read that. It was written in the 1940s. Um, So C.S. Lewis talks about uh, Screwtape, who is the devil uh, and Satan and he is talking to one of his protégés, his underlings, a demon. And his underling's his name is what? Wormwood. Very good. And uh, so uh, uh, Screwtape gives Wormwood some advice on how to deal with Christians. He said, um, most Christians are easy to deal with. You know, they're pretty simple. Uh, here's my advice how to deal with Christians. He said, quote, to keep them in a state of mind, I call Christianity and... Right? Come on. You know that's true. Christianity and. Christianity and something else. Now, in C.S. Lewis's days, this is what he said. Now, this is very contextualized, you'll understand. He said, this is the 1940s, Christianity and the New Order. That was FDR, right? Christianity and New Psychology. Christianity and Faith Healing. Christianity and vegetarianism. Even back then they had vegetarianism. I don't know why, but they did. And so, so all of that. And so C.S. Lewis was saying, anytime you add anything else to Christ, you've got a problem. Now, lest we're too harsh on those dear folks, your parents and grandparents and my parents and grandparents. Today, it's Christ plus self-affirmation. Christ plus coolness. Christ plus self-improvement. Christ plus environmentalism. Christ plus social justice. Christ plus politics. Screwtape would say, anything added to Jesus amounts to nothing. That's why he titled his book, Mere Christianity. And us, today, Christianity and achievements. Christianity and our strengths. Christianity and our reputation. Christianity and our personal set of life rules that we have come to believe are the answer, and we think everybody else should live by our personal life rules as well. Christianity plus our purpose. Christianity plus goodness. All this becomes an idol. When you add anything to Christ, it becomes heresy. Christ plus everything or anything equals nothing. Martin Luther said it this way, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, That is really your God. So what are you trusting for other than Jesus? Here's what the Bible says about these idols. In Isaiah, Isaiah talks a lot about idols. In 41, 24, he says, Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. Oh, thanks, Isaiah. That builds up my self-esteem. You know, I feel really good about myself now. He was just being honest. He was just being honest. Isaiah also says that idols are a delusion, they do not profit, they're worthless. And then in Acts 14, 15 in the New Testament, it says, it echoes what Isaiah said, idols are worthless. Everything, which is anything we depend on to give us life or sustain us, is idolatry. Paul says in Colossians, very simply, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Now there's a beautiful illustration and I won't take the time to read the whole text, but you can find it in Luke 16, 19 to 26. It's a story of the rich man and Lazarus. And it's really a fascinating story because here we have a rich man who, by the way, is not named. Uh, he has been given traditionally. It's not in Scripture, but he's given uh, traditionally the name uh, Dives. You ever heard that Dives? OK, Dives was the tr- And what that is, the Latin word for a wealthy man. So Dives, this rich man. Um, uh, he dies, and he goes across this great chasm, and, um, and and it's a dark place, and it's a sad place, and it's a uh, it's a terrible place, and 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 he looks across the great, great chasm, and he's dying of thirst. He, he, there's it's so hot there, and so he, he he wants thirst, and so he looks across this great chasm, and guess who he sees? He sees Lazarus, who is a pitiful beggar in life. And he looks across and he says, I, I want, I want some water, just, just a touch of water on my tongue and I'll, and I'll be okay. And, and the narrator in the story, which is the Lord says, no, that chasm is too great to cross. Basically, in life, everyone knew your name. In life, you were the guy. In life, everybody thought you were something and you thought you were something. But in death, no one knows your name. Lazarus? A beggar? Probably a man of faith, doesn't even say, but a beggar? This man is known, and he is on a place called paradise. And the contrast there between knowing your name on earth and knowing your name in eternity, God says you have come to believe that some things will really make you rock. They'll really make you solid. They'll really make you happy. And nothing ever does. Religion doesn't work. Position, prosperity, doesn't work. This contrast of an impoverished man, Lazarus, a hungry beggar in paradise, carried by angels to Abraham's bosom, and this great chasm, and there's a man over there, and nobody knows his name. I want everything. Yet because of this emptiness... I have nothing, which leads us to the third statement about the greatness of Jesus. And it's this. I want to earn it. Now, some of you immediately will say, well, that's not me. I'm not a legalist. I I don't want to earn my salvation. Well, I I know that. But just we so easily fall into this trap. That emptiness, that thing that needs to be filled, that Augustine says we will not rest until it's filled. uh, We fill it with idols But here, especially for Christians, here's the greatest threat to idolatry for believers, in my opinion. It's called legalism. Uh, Chavijan, in his book, calls it performanceism. I think the greatest barrier for us to experience the greatness of Jesus is to think somehow that we can make God happy with our performance. We keep a list of religious rules. By the way, they're all different from everybody else. We have uh, this idea that, um, that that we are a moral, which is a good thing to accede to. There's nothing wrong with uh, trying to be moral. You know, that's morality. There's something very wrong with moralism. Making morality a thing unto itself. And that's what so many Christians that I know have done. Moralism is the ability to do good. To save ourselves. The illusion of satisfying that emptiness by good works. Our rules become A substitute savior. Jesus railed against those who thought rules were enough. The Pharisees were called whitewashed tombs. And in a great story, the prodigal son, I won't take time to read that story now, but you know what happened with the prodigal son? Here was uh, the guy went away and he lost all of his father's inheritance or half of his inheritance in riotous sinful living. He came back to his father not expecting to be received as a son. Just take me in as a hired hand. Let me slop the pigs for you, dad. And and uh, he and, and you know what happened? The father bestowed his love on him. He embraced him. He couldn't stop kissing his head. And then he put a beautiful robe and a beautiful ring. And he cut the fatted or he 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 sacrificed the fatted calf and they. Had had a great great celebration and the older brother who was very into moralism he stayed home he did all the good stuff he took care of his father he was a good son he did all the right things but at the end of the story the older son says what about me Basically, when the older son or when anyone who thinks they've been good looks at God and says, what about me? You know what we're saying? We're saying to God, you owe me. God, you owe me. I behaved. How come I'm sick? How come I have cancer? How come I lost my job? God, you owe me. And somehow we've come to believe that our moralism or our check off the list, the the boxes that we've been good, somehow that's what will fill up that emptiness inside of us. We've come to believe that if we behave, God owes us. Mark Driscoll of Mars Hill in Seattle put a list together. It's called How to Be a Legalist. I love this list. Uh, And some of you will recognize it because I grew up in a legalistic church. Here's the list. Make rules outside the Bible. Number two, push yourself to try and keep your rules. Number three, castigate yourself when you don't keep your rules. Number four, become proud when you do keep your rules. Number five, appoint yourself as judge over other people. Ouch, that's a harsh one. But too many evangelicals have been accused of that, and rightly so. Number six, get angry with people who break your rules or have different rules. And number seven, beat the losers. In other words, if you don't meet my expectations, I'll just throw you under the bus. People outside the church, and this really hurts me to even say it, People outside of the church believe this of us. They believe that this is what our religion is. They believe that what you are looking to instead of Jesus for the meaning of life, for purpose, for significance, security, direction, acceptance, approval, is just our ability to be good. The message of Colossians is that no matter how hard you try, no matter how good you are, it doesn't begin to measure up to the bigness The greatness, the vastness of knowing Jesus. In Colossians, it says, well, how about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They were pretty awesome, weren't they? You know, the three guys, the three big guys in the Jewish, they were pretty awesome. Yeah, they were good, but uh, they don't even begin to compare to Jesus. Really? What about angels? Angels are awesome, and they fly around, and they do good things. How about angels? Uh, Angels are nice, and, you know, they're messengers, and they do some good things, but they don't even begin to compare to the amazingness of Jesus? What about religion? What about doing good and being the right kind of person and, and giving our tithe and going to church and being just all these things that we're supposed to? Well, that's all good. There's nothing wrong with that as long as you're not hung up on that. But uh, it doesn't even begin to compare to the greatness of Jesus. And that leads us to the last statement, and it's this. Jesus is enough. When Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians, it was approximately A.D. 60. Colossae was a trade center with lots of travelers coming and going. It was a pluralistic community. There were competing ideas and philosophies and worldviews vying for recognition and uh, supremacy. And in the midst of that, uh, a church, a brand new church, Paul plops right in the middle of Colossae. Now, these are a few collected believers who live there, and and all of a sudden they are to be this church in this pluralistic community. It's in that mix the church is planted, and concepts are constantly pulling away from the gospel, and there are false teachers such as Gnostics, and we'll talk about that. And everybody was saying, okay, Jesus is okay, but he's not enough. It's Jesus plus Gnosticism. It's Jesus plus Judaism. It's Jesus plus religion. It's Jesus plus circumcision. It's Jesus plus something else. And into that controversy, Paul comes and speaks this truth. Don't you know that Christ is bigger than all of those things? That he is greater? That he is more sufficient than our sin? Don't you realize that Jesus' grace is so much bigger than anything you've ever seen or known or understood? Yeah, but but, but preacher, what about our sin? Yeah, it's big. My sin was big. I, I admit it. It was so big. But Jesus is bigger. Our efforts? Oh, we try so hard and we try to be good and we've been religious and good all of our lives. Our efforts? God's grace is bigger. Our idols, those things we've come to believe will satisfy us and they never do. The gospel is bigger. There's nothing small about the gospel or Jesus. When you taste the goodness, the greatness of Jesus, you lose a taste for false idols. The study we're about to embark on is about seeing Jesus as bigger and When you taste Jesus and you taste for sure what he is and who he is, you kind of lose your taste for everything else. The great commentator, Matthew Henry, said it this way. The joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures which the tempter baits his hooks. Our mouths will be out of taste for pleasures. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when you understand the greatness of Jesus, when you get a taste of who he is and what he wants to be in your life, when you understand that his grace is so far greater than your sin, when you understand that his mercy is so much greater than your brokenness, when you understand that that everything that you have come to believe that will satisfy you, it is so much greater when you taste The goodness of Jesus, he and he alone will satisfy. So I want to ask you a question as we close. Is he big enough for you? Is he sufficient? Is he enough? Would you close your eyes? And as you close your eyes, I want to read for you a a passage from Colossians. Just a few verses. Hear the word of God for you. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Jesus, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth, or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. If you keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed.